the state is that actually has the most numbers we've had on diversity so far about the tech industry. It has numbers of, for companies that are that have more than 100 employees and who've never released their reports. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today's guest is Sinduja Rangarajan. She's a reporter from Reveal News, the Center for Investigative Reporting. Sinduja recently published a report detailing Silicon Valley's diversity numbers. You know, we've seen these reports on diversity numbers in Silicon Valley before, and it's no secret that there are some disparities there, especially among underrepresented minorities. But this isn't just any report. The report's findings are the first of its kind, actually, and it features an analysis of nearly 200 of the largest tech firms in the San Francisco Bay Area. And this analysis uncovers deeply troubling trends in racial and gender disparities across these companies, especially among Black and Latino workers. What this report reveals about Silicon Valley is so, so fascinating, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sinduja Rangarajan. Sinduja Rangarajan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So the report that you released is described as the clearest picture of Silicon Valley's diversity yet. And, you know, until I read your report, I, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of what diversity was like in Silicon Valley. I mean, I think everyone understands that there isn't much diversity there. But I'm curious about your report in comparison to previous reports that have come out. I mean, I think there was one that came out in March, which gave diversity numbers for Uber, for instance, and some other Silicon Valley tech companies. So how was this report different? Um, this is a really interesting question and gets to the heart of how our analysis is a little bit different from the reports that have come out so far. For all that coverage and report about diversity, surprisingly, there's not that much data about diversity out there. Some of the major companies like you mentioned, you know, Uber and Facebook, Google, Intel, they they release their numbers publicly. They release something called as they release diversity reports and they also release something called as EEO1 forms. These are one page federally these are like one page forms that companies are supposed to submit to the federal government every year giving a breakdown of their workforce, of their race, their gender, demographics and what tends to happen is that these companies release them release them to the public. Most of Silicon Valley doesn't. And so most of the analysis that's been centered around has been looking at numbers from from these companies. What we did was we filed FOIA requests. We asked around 211 companies in Silicon Valley to release this data. And most of them didn't. So far, I think 30-odd companies, which is less than a third, have released this data for any for, 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 for any year. And then we said, you know, how do we know what's happening with the industry, not just the top companies and assume that they're representative of the industry, but what what is happening with the rest of Silicon Valley? And so we went to an academic who has access to this data, who has access to this EEO1 report that companies send to the federal government uh, because he works with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commissions. He he has a special contract with them. And he was able to give us these numbers for 177 companies, some of the largest companies in Silicon Valley. And he anonymized 
the numbers. So we don't know the names of the companies and we can't attach that to the numbers. We But we got a very good sense of the distribution of these numbers and the industry in general. Right. So these EEO reports, so they're required to submit them if they have a certain number of employees, but they are not required to report the data to the public. Is that correct? Yes. They have to submit it to the federal government if they have more than 100 employees. If they're a federal contractor, then if they have more than 50 employees, but they're not required to submit them to the public. And most companies don't. And there's also a little bit of controversy around forms. Companies often say that, you know, these forms are not they're not reflective of how they think about their workforce because the forms tend to have uh, job categories which the companies don't even have. Uh, so the companies criticize the reports, but most of them, um, some some of the big companies, I shouldn't say most actually, that's that's not right. But some of the big companies like Google or Facebook, they release their own diversity reports, and then on top of that, they also release EEO one and. That's how it, it's been for the big companies. Right. I, I also find it really fascinating because you you had a separate report or published a separate report about how you obtain the data. And I think that that's fascinating in itself because it's kind of cloak and dagger. So when you approach these companies, some of them refuse to give you this data, correct? Some of them, actually, most of them refuse to give this data. <laughs> yeah. like we okay. asked, you know, 211 companies and then we got back responses. Some of them were already releasing it publicly, like Google's. It was, wasn't very hard to get those. We just had to grab it from the website. And then some of them gave it to us. Um, that, that happened last fall. Pinterest uh, was an example. Um, I think Square was an example. They gave it to us. And, and, and then that's about it. And, and that, that was around 23 companies last year. And then ever since we published the first report, we heard back from PayPal, we heard back from Slack, uh, and we've heard back from a few other companies. So, so far, I think it's around, the, the count is around 30. So the majority of them wouldn't give out these reports publicly. So we had to go through the route of collaborating with an academic at the Center for Employment um, Equity at the University of Massachusetts Amherst to get this data. Right. I mean, that's not really surprising because the culture of a lot of these companies is around having a lack of transparency, right? When you think about the news that's come out about Facebook and how they handled, you know, election data with ads being sold and the fake news debacle, they're known for having a lack of transparency. So this isn't a surprise to me, at least, I guess. So some of the companies actually use the excuse that diversity numbers were a trade secret. How do you justify that? How do they define that as a trade secret? I think we're also struggling to know that. And and that's why we filed a lawsuit with the Department of Labor, um, because the Department of Labor has access to their EEO1 reports. And, you know, we can file and if they're a federal contractor, we can file a Freedom of Information Act request and we could ask the Department of Labor to give up those reports. Uh, So what typically happens is the Department of Labor asks the company for their permission and some companies, you know, deny, some companies allow actually. And then they're like, fine, you can release the EEO1 report from our end. And then Sanmina, the electronics manufacturer, Sanmina is an example of that. We got their reports through FOIA requests. But then there are several others who just deny, for example, Pandora, Oracle, Palantir Technologies, federal contractors. These are all federal contractors. Palantir and um, some of these companies even have been accused of discrimination and are involved in discrimination lawsuits. But then they would still deny or tell the Department of Labor that this information shouldn't be released to the public. And um, specifically, I think some of them say that this is a trade secret. I think an example of that is Gilead Sciences. They would justify it being a trade secret. I think Pandora is another example. Because, uh, I mean, we're still struggling to know what 
what the reasons are for why they would classify it as it as a trade secret. One of the things we've heard from our reporting is uh, when you have the, the EEO one form that we request is like this consolidated report that talks about all their employees in the U.S. I think uh, that they don't want to give out a breakdown of employees by offices because they're afraid of poaching. But but really, we don't understand why it's a trade secret because some of some of their biggest competitors, you know, some of the larger tech companies, including like like I mentioned, Facebook and Cisco and Adobe, they all release these numbers every year publicly and they release this consolidated EEO and report. So we we don't understand why it's a trade secret for others and we're still trying to figure that out. Right. You know, maybe we should explain because I know, I'm not sure if everyone understands what an EEO report is, right? I mean, does that stand for Equal Employment Opportunity Report? Is that? Yes. It's basically just a form that the uh, companies are required to submit to the federal government what this required to submit to the federal government has a lot of components to it, but basically it's a form where they give out the breakdown of their employees by race and gender. So they have certain fixed racial categories. There's a debate about how those forms can be better, but you know, you would give out your employees, you would basically give out those forms and uh, you, would, you would fill out those forms as a company and then submit it to the federal government and give an employee count by race, gender and job category. So it's not just how many black employees do I have, but how many black men, how many black women and where are they? You know, where are they in the, in, in the company? Uh, are they executives? Are they in managerial positions? Are they professionals? Which would include, you know, marketing professionals, analysts, tech professionals, non-tech professionals. Are they doing admin support jobs and so it, it would just give a breakdown by categories and it's it's the same form for every company you know and, and companies are different and and an airbnb is different from an uber is different from a google so companies in in different ways are different but they all have to classify their employees according to the to the categories on the spreadsheet and then submit that form or those set of forms to the federal government every year Right. So let's dig into some of the data. So first of all, how did you choose the companies to, to look at? We looked at the largest companies in Silicon Valley. We said, you know, that's what we were interested in. Um, and, and we were interested in the largest companies. So obviously we were interested in the companies that everybody knows about. But then we were also interested in the companies that, that were defining our lives, but were kind of under the radar. You know, one of the examples is probably NVIDIA or Oracle. or They're really big companies that define Silicon Valley, but not everybody knows about them like you would think about a Google or a Facebook or a Twitter. Uh, so we wanted to look at all these companies. And so we consulted some lists. So we went to the San Jose Mercury News. They put out a list called SV150, uh, which is the top 150 companies, uh, publicly traded companies, and they rank them. And we took that list and then we said, but this is all publicly traded companies. What about, you know, startups like Uber or Airbnb or Pinterest? You know, we wanted them in the list as well because they're, they're startups, they're extremely successful, but they're not public yet. And so we looked at a list of unicorns, which is basically any company which is valued at more than a billion dollars. And we looked at Crunchbase and we looked at CB Insights and we consulted with these lists and we just picked all the uh, startups which were a part of that unicorn list, which were based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. So that means we've excluded companies like uh, Amazon or Microsoft because we just wanted to focus in on, on Silicon Valley. Right. So which companies, what are the top three that fared the worst? Um, I wouldn't say, you know, that's a that's a good question, but it's also a complicated question because companies 
that do well on one criteria also have work to do because they they lag behind on others. And so when when you think about companies that lag behind on one criteria, they're also doing fairly okay on on something else. One of the examples is you know that we write about is, is Nvidia. It's in the bottom five for the representation of of women workers, and in, in the bottom four actually tied with another company. So I say bottom five, but they're really in the bottom four uh, for for women workers in in, in their workforce out of 177 companies. So that's like four out of 177. There are three companies that have a lower representation of women than NVIDIA. One of them was Dynamic Glass, Smart Glass Manufacturer View. But, you know, if you look at Views numbers for Black people in general, they also have one of the highest share of Black workers in, in Silicon Valley. With NVIDIA, you know, they have a very low quotient for uh, for women and they also rank low for underrepresented minorities, you know, Black, Latino, multiracial workers but they have a high share of Asian professionals. So it's companies doing terrible on one thing, doing fairly okay on something else. But overall, I think that's the key message that even if, you know, for example, 23andMe, one of the most diverse places for women, you know, has one of the highest numbers for women leaders and executives, also has 100% of its executive rung is white and Asian. So it doesn't have any underrepresented minorities in its executive rung and leadership team. So every company uh, that, that we looked at, most of the companies have work to do. Right. And you said that also the numbers could be misleading because the diversity picture overall is so bad. A company could have, you know, just a couple of black executives, for example, or just a couple of women executives, and that would put them at the higher at the higher end of the ranking, mm-hmm. just because overall there's just so few. Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a key point. And the interesting thing about this is, you know, we looked at percentages. Our anonymized data set of 177 companies has percentages. And when we looked at the EEO one forms, though, we, it had raw numbers, you know, and then we had to calculate. The percentages out of that. The interesting thing is, you know, the more transparency or the more data we have, the more nuanced our analysis can get. An example of this is is black executives at NetApp and uh, at Lyft and at some of these companies, which which you know have few black executives still high on the ranking because others are doing even worse. And uh, Adobe is an example of you know a company that had ninety three executives in two thousand sixteen, and none of them were black. So, you know, even though NetApp had only three black executives, it's still three out of 36 and 8%. And so they deserve credit for that. But looking at the whole picture, you know, uh, even having a few black executives would catapult companies to the top of the rankings for that reason. Yeah. I think Facebook's numbers, they have 10 black executives, at least at the time that you did the report. So what's, you know, that number sounds good, a nice round number, but percentage-wise, an impact for the overall company is probably small. They probably have a small um, imprint. Um, I think they had more than 10. So I think it was around 14. And it was 14 out of, I believe, 496. I don't have my numbers with me right now. So uh, I think this is this is going to be the ballpark. And it, it's above average when it comes to the executive rung and for Black executives. And the only company that I can say for sure in that 2016 uh, report, which had more than 10 Black executives. So what does the overall picture look like? What does the data look like starting at the executive level? The, the finding is with the share, not so much with the numbers. You know, so it's, it's, it's a 
percentage that's that's dropping and i think it would actually translate to to fewer people of color higher up the rung so the disparities are particularly stark at the executive level and when you look at numbers for asian women or, or when they're professionals you know they're around 8 12% and then when you move up to managers it's 8 and then when you move up to executives it's it's 4%. The the key thing to remember about this is we're looking at percentages and then when we look at percentages for white men or even white women for white men it, the number is growing and then for white women it's sort of sort of constant i think it's 13 for professionals 18 for managers so it goes up a little and then it's 14 for executives it's not dropping down like it did for asian women and uh, similarly it, same things for black and latino workers as well first of all the numbers are very poor in in, in general so the drop off when you look at them in the charts that you don't see those trends as clearly because you're starting out with 1 or 2% or 3 or 4% of 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 black and latino workers even at the professional level and then uh, even the, the managerial level, they might be constant or there might be a drop. And then there's definitely a drop at the executive level. So that's true for most of the groups, except for white employees. Right. So do you have any data about how certain anomalies happen, right? You mentioned there was one company that had a large number of Black employees or Black professionals, and also 23andMe had a large number of, of women. How do those anomalies happen? I'm not sure that they're anomalies in, in, in the sense that, you know, the interesting thing about this data is that we show, or or the data at least shows, that diversity is possible. I mean, that there's variations. So you have companies on one end of the spectrum, but you also have companies in the middle and the other end of the spectrum, most of whom we we don't know who they are. And that's, that's the that's what links to this transparency issue. Right. And we want to know who they are. Uh, you know, who are the companies which don't have any black employees in 2016 or any female executives in 2016? But who are the companies that have 82% of their managers and executives are women? But but which is that company either? We don't know who's on either end of the spectrum and we don't know most of who's in the middle either. So it's not an anomaly in the sense that there are companies that have better numbers than their peers. Not that they don't have work to do, but they have better numbers than their peers. And the interesting thing is, so I spoke to the companies which did have these better numbers. One of them was NetApp, the other one was 23andMe. And uh, one of the things that I learned from 23andMe was the employees really uh, think about their CEO, who's a female founder and a female CEO, and really believe that her presence and the tone that she set has really helped them be more diverse. That's something I kept hearing again and again in my reporting and heard the same thing for Pinterest as well, that the CEO sort of sets the tone for what diversity should look like and therefore has been able to invest in resources and invest in the importance of what the value means to the company and how it shapes the company. And so they're able to do and try different things and hire more diverse staff for that reason. So that's something I heard from from companies over and over again. Right. That's actually a really important key piece of, of information that's missing, right? I mean, you can't take the example of 23andMe and apply it elsewhere if the data isn't available, right? You can only make an anecdotal guess as to, you know, what makes some companies better at this than others. Yeah, and and we've done some reporting on that, but yeah, there's still a lot of work to do. And the other thing I heard was, you know, companies that really care about diversity consult experts and are are willing to learn from people who know this, who do evidence based work, and uh, are willing to consult with them and willing to accept or look into their shortcomings and sort of keep 
uh, improving upon that. I mean, I guess one assumption you can make in this case is that, you know, the, the CEO at 23andMe is a woman. And I think that there is some some indicators, at least, you know, maybe anecdotally that, you know, women will hire more women or there are less gender disparities across the company when the executive levels have more women. Yeah, I mean, that's something we heard from our reporting over and over again. The other part of this is also, you know, when a lot of hiring, and people keep saying this all the time, the people hire from their networks. And so when you belong to a majority group, you tend to look at the schools you went to and you tend to look at your friends and your network and you would hire people like you. So that's what happens. And and so that's the flip side of the coin why Silicon Valley has come to a place where it's not very diverse because there's no conscious attention paid to the issue for, for a while. It's changing now, but that that's the history of that, so that people hire from networks and therefore end up hiring people uh, looking like them. Right. And it goes beyond that. It goes to promotions and, you know, new job opportunities within the company, right? Because a lot of this is about culture in the company, the culture in the company and socializing within the company and having networks within the company. So mm-hmm. even if someone, you know, a black person or a woman gets their foot into the door in one of these companies, you know, they may not be able to build the social networks or the connections to climb, right? Which kind of leads yes. to attrition levels. Absolutely. And then there's very little data on attrition. The uh, one company that's released attrition data for the very first time was Google this year, um, a few weeks ago. Uh, Apart from that, we have very little data on attrition. And this is almost like the first step, you know, knowing that the EEO ones are flawed, they don't have everything, but they still have a lot of information, they're standardized. And even to get that consolidated aggregated report of how your workforce looks like has been an uphill battle. And so retention is is also very key data and, and that's that's missing also. Even from our reporting over and over again, we convened a roundtable in January with, with women of color working in tech. And one of the things we kept hearing was that, you know, they need sponsorship. That's different from just, you know, getting tips on how to do well or be mentored, but someone who can really advocate for you and your work and make you visible in the company. And a lot of women of color don't have opportunities to get promoted, to switch teams, to to, to really grow. And many times companies miss out out on the value they can bring. Yeah. And and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on and I wanted to dig into this report is because, you know, we were talking offline about my own experience. You know, I spent my entire career in, in technology and I don't live in Silicon Valley. I live in Seattle, but the experience is pretty much pretty much the same. And I, you know, I was thinking back on my own career and the two big breaks I had in my career were when I had women as managers, right? One was a black woman and one, you know, was was a white woman, but those are the only big breaks I had in my career. And one of the teams that I had was the team was 80% women. The the manager was actually a woman, right? And I kind of saw those patterns over and over throughout my career. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's 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 very interesting. Um, it's not to say that, you know, men managers don't promote women or that they don't do a good job of doing that. I think we really don't have evidence to say that, but it's just the the uh, awareness of being in a position of power and, and noticing people who are doing well and having an opportunity to advocate or, or or sponsor for them. One of the people I spoke to said, it's about what gets said behind closed doors. You know, how is your mentor or your sponsor really advocating for you 
behind closed doors for you? And how are they making you visible so you get the next big project or you get to work on something that's beneficial for your career? And 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 that's that's a key piece that's missing, especially for women of color in, in tech. Yeah. And there was a report recently, I can't remember where I saw this, but on mentorships, right, in these companies. And, you know, when there is not a connection culturally between an employee and a manager, those mentorships you know, the employees lose out on those mentorships, right? They, they can't advocate for someone that they don't have a connection with, or they won't advocate for someone that they don't have a connection with. And so I think women and people of color miss out in that way as well. Yes. I mean, there's lots of reporting about isolation and feeling isolated and really not seeing people like you in leadership, represented in leadership, not seeing, not having access to to people who would understand where you're coming from and help you on board into the company, into the company's culture and really let you let you grow. And, and I think that's a key part of retention. That's a key part of letting employees grow and creating those pathways for people to people to grow because they don't have those connections and they don't have people who are teaching them the language that they're supposed to use in these platforms. All right, so let's talk about some specific examples. Shanaea King-Roberson, she was at Google, right? And so what happened with her career? So Shanaea King-Roberson, you know, a trailblazer employee, she was at Google. She joined as a contractor and she was writing on community blogs and got a full-time position, moved up to be a project manager and was doing many things that a product manager would do, according to her, you know, planning product strategy, planning release, doing some very important work across multiple teams as a full-time employee. And then she always wanted to be a product manager. And she'd started working towards that. She'd heard from many people that having a computer science degree would help. So she even started pursuing a computer science degree. And then when a product manager position opened up, uh, she sort of hit a ceiling. Uh, she, you know, did interviews with a team inside Google and, you know, was told she was really good and that she 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 should get the job. But then a manager pulled her aside, well-meaning manager said, you know, it's, it's great that, you know, you want to do this. We love you, but I don't think you can pass like company-wide tests because, um, you don't have a degree, you don't have the software engineering experience. So, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to make it. And so it, it, things got complicated there. They, you know, if, if they essentially told her, you know, that she wouldn't be able to pass those company-wide tests. So there's a team interview and then there's like a company-wide interview to be a product manager. And according to her, it would take a lot of time. It was pretty bureaucratic. And so she wasn't able to make that leap. And so eventually she had to move to eBay. She, she did find a job as a product manager. She was still finishing up her computer science degree and so she hadn't finished her degree and uh, she found out that not all companies in Silicon Valley uh, sort of need that degree or those years of core engineering experience to be a product manager and she she's told me that you know it took her a long time to even believe that that was true but it was and then she moved to eBay and then she uh, eventually you know actually now as an update which is not a part of the story is that she's she's the head of product at a new startup now uh, so so it, so the point is that she was able to be a product manager and she could deliver on being a product manager it's just that she didn't have the opportunity to do it at Google because of bureaucratic processes i see and you also said in the report that there were more Blacks and Latinos in support or customer service positions and more women in admin and support type positions. What did you find there? You know, I can't speak to why it is. I can just definitely speak to 
the fact that it is and in many of these companies you know there's over representation of women in in support roles so when you look at the men in support roles and then the women in support roles it's more women than than it is men or at least it's a higher percentage of women than it is men and some companies it's the proportions are way out of whack like facebook and then in some companies it's sort of it's sort of you know a lesser proportion happening to a lesser degree but still happening i've spoken to many experts about this one of the things is you know historically those positions were held by women that's that's sort of an excuse but th- those those kinds of things send out signals to where people are and what happens to the different groups admin support definitely has you know a higher percentage of women and when you look at the data differently for black and latino workers if you look at the black population in a particular company you would see that many of them end up being in admin support so they they're probably getting in through the door via entry level positions and fewer of them are getting into those companies as professionals as as managers or as executives i think this data speaks to key things about how companies look like internally and how the compositions look like and this the second thing it speaks to is what are the pathways for people who get into those entry level positions and do they have pathways to move up and do those pathways exist and if companies should be creating those pathways and we definitely know from angelica's example that she she didn't have that option that she was told uh, angelica coleman who worked at dropbox she was definitely told that you know if you want to be an admin anything other than an admin you would have to go somewhere else and so she did go somewhere else and i think the interesting thing about these examples of of shania and angelica is that they were able to be successful but they had to leave companies to do so which which raises the question of why didn't these companies in whatever way or form whether it's having a bureaucratic process that is sensitive to how it's keeping out certain groups or being encouraging and supportive when uh, employees ask to be promoted or when p- employees uh, prove that they can do other roles and move out of the admin support roles that they're a part of then companies haven't really been listening to that and and that's definitely true of dropbox that when angelica wanted to move up and she has a verbal offer according to her she had a verbal offer from the head of design then who said you can come to our team and you can work as a user experience researcher and the head of admin and other people in the in the company didn't allow her to make that move and and eventually she did move up i mean she went to zenda and then she went to Lesbian Sutech and she's been doing non-admin roles since then so clearly she could have probably done that role at Dropbox or should have been given that opportunity but wasn't the the interesting thing is do these people have pathways to move up because there are so many of them in more groups you know in in those jobs and the other key part of this is when when this is what the composition of the workforce looks like does that mean that there are signals Uh, and and implicit and explicit messages being given out to to groups of people and employees are we saying that if you belong to a particular group then I, i i think a researcher i spoke to put it very eloquently that women of color and people of color they have to constantly keep thinking about whether it's just that i don't see people like me up there because you know they just haven't found anybody or is it because that's not a job for me like there's no pathway to get there and 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 that's the signal or the key piece of uh, implicit explicit signals that we're talking about right and i think for people listening who may not understand the way when you say pathways for people the way it often works with inside these companies is that these companies often set up these superficial barriers for people 
by their title or by these job levels, right? So a person who's working as an admin may, I'm just making up a number, maybe at a level 30 or something. I don't know what the levels are. And to move outside of the admin working role, you'd have to be at a different level, like a level 40, for instance, to become a user experience engineer or a product manager. And, you know, someone has to actually grant you that that level, that new level from moving from a level 30 to level 40 to get the new position. And, you know, there's lots of bureaucratic steps in between that. And, you know, often your your skills have little to do with that. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, and, and, and what I've heard from reporting is that there's an extreme emphasis on engineering skills, but there was so much emphasis on engineering and engineering skills that all her experience of doing product management didn't amount to her being able to make the leap. So you you also interviewed someone, Charlotte Allegria, and I think she works on diversity in, in tech companies. She she said something really interesting about how they choose to move people into positions and in managerial positions like product management positions, and that often women of color were not offered the same opportunities as white women or white men to moving into managerial roles. What did you learn about that from her? I think for me, the interesting thing about Sharla's findings and, and when I got to speak to her was I was hearing these stories from women of color, from Shania, from Angelica, from, from several other people. But uh, for me, Sharla's expertise, she'd interviewed 45 people, not all of them women of color, but, you know, different men and women, white women, women of color. She'd interviewed 45 people in depth and did these extensive interviews with them and learned, you know, that for women of color, they were always in positions that they had exactly the skills and credentials for, uh, according to her. And for white women, on the other hand, it, it was that their their communication skills and their ability to communicate between technical and management skills were always appreciated. And they were always given these promotions to be managers, to be project managers, product managers even if they necessarily didn't have the specialized skills for it. And if women of color wanted those roles to be managers, they would have to either go get an MBA or they would have to look for a separate mentor in another company. But it wasn't very easy for them to move from the roles that they were in into other roles. But that mobility was was easier for white women. She said this with a caveat. She said that even for white women, and we know this from the data, that it's not that white women that are, that are you know, they're, they're doing spectacularly well. They're still lower percentages of of women in general and true for white women too, except that at least these women had an opportunity to move out of engineering teams if they want to, because those teams tend to be deadline driven, sometimes hostile towards women, or that's what Charla found. And it was easier for white women to get out of those roles and move into managerial roles. They had that option. Women of color didn't have that option, and they would probably be more likely to leave tech. And those findings are all, you know, tying in together with my data, with with Charla's analysis, and with other reports that have come out about leaving tech and minorities leaving tech. Right. So which probably leads us to the attrition question, which we don't really have data on. Right. So it sounds like what you're saying or what she was saying, rather, was that when black women were in these positions, their skills would match exactly for what was needed for that position. But they weren't given stretch goals, reach goals, for instance. Yeah, I mean, they weren't offered these opportunities for using their communication skills to translate into managerial positions. They weren't being told that, hey, 
you know, you're really good at your job, you know your technical stuff, but you also have these communication skills, which I think can be really useful or key in being a product manager where you can translate between teams, between global teams, between different kinds of teams. So so be that missing link. They weren't offered those jobs, but white women were. So what were some of the reasons that companies gave for their lack of diversity? Many things. Uh, one of the things, you know, that I highlight in the report is is the pipeline. Facebook in 2016, their global diversity officer blamed the pipeline. She said there aren't enough qualified candidates or, uh, and, and she was, Facebook's having a hard time finding qualified candidates. And so other companies have also said that the pipeline is a problem. The pipeline is a problem in the sense that you do have more Asian and white engineers coming out of the system. But the key difference is, you know, there's a gap between the black and the Latino engineers coming out of the system with computer science degrees. And their representation in tech, not just in Facebook, of course, but like in in Silicon Valley. So, you know, when you look at those aggregate numbers, you see that the numbers don't match up and then there's a difference or there's a gap. So what's going on in that gap is, is the question we raise and other media outlets have raised as well. It's not that there's no pipeline problem. Women and minorities are getting fewer women and fewer minorities are getting CS degrees as compared to their white or Asian peers. But even when you look at the percentage of people getting the degrees and the percentage of people getting jobs, there's a drop off for these groups. And so that's the thing about the pipeline. It's not that they're wrong when they say the pipeline doesn't have as many, but they're wrong when they use that as an excuse because, you know, you're still not doing enough to recruit the numbers that you could be getting out of the pipeline or they could utilize the pipeline much better is is the point. Um, The second thing I've heard over and over again with, with data transparency that the EEO ones sort of don't reflect how they think of their workforce, that they it has outdated job categories or that it doesn't have data on age and disability and sexual orientation. And really the answer to that is why don't you publish more of this and more of that? And then many companies are doing that, including NetApp, which said that and which opposed a shareholder resolution to release that EEO and data, but then eventually ended up releasing that EEO and data anyway and said, you know, take a look at this. I mean, we have all this other information which we think is a better reflection of our workforce, but here's the EEO one anyway. And and, and what that does is that it helps us compare companies against each other. Right. You know, the pipeline also doesn't explain what happens when you have people of color already within the company, right? The fact that you have fewer at the executive levels and more at the kind of support admin levels, right? It doesn't explain that. And it doesn't explain the attrition numbers, for instance, that were just released by Google. Yeah, I I think the pipeline argument is more for professionals and skilled professionals. Uh, I think when we think about pathways, we're thinking about what can people in those positions do and how companies can be conscious about people in, in support positions to help them up their skills, to help them get those skills they may need to move into professional and managerial rules and generally move up. But the pipeline problem is usually coming for not the support jobs, but for the professional jobs and for the engineering jobs and then higher up after that. The other thing about the pipeline is there have been reports that have said that the number of Black and Latino workers in technical positions outside of tech like universities need people in tech positions, right? Um, banks need people in tech positions. And when you look at those numbers, there's a disparity there as well. The minority numbers or the percentages in tech 
versus the minority in percentages outside of tech in companies like universities and banks there's a difference there as well the the minorities in tech are fewer the percentages are fewer than what's happening for tech jobs in other sectors like universities and banks so even in that sense that it seems like there's more of a pipeline that that's available than the representation in yeah, companies i see so one of the solutions that's often offered is that you know from people of color and for women to start their own companies right um minorities and and women are trying to start companies very much so and maybe they would recruit more people like them and continue with the network effect but uh they don't have vc funding you know the vc funding uh black women the last i read and i haven't deeply reported on this but i've done some reporting it was 2.0.2% and i think women get like 2% of all the funding again i'm i'm quoting from forbes and wired and other news organizations that have reported on this issue you can you can see that this disparity in who gets funded so if these people don't get funding or these groups don't get funding then how are they supposed to be starting their own companies so that's a key part of why that doesn't happen or where the where the barriers happen when when minority groups try to start their own companies right so so where do we go from here how do we take this data and apply it and you know make good use of it That's a really interesting question. I think there's more to be done with this data. We've looked at some trends, but there's a lot more that can happen here. I think the the next step is if more companies release EEO ones and some of them are on the verge of doing so is is see where they rank. Uh, it's it's a great resource for anyone who wants to see where their company is on on the spectrum. And I think that's also a key piece of information required for tech employees. to know if they would be safe in companies if that's the best choice and fit for them because if the company values diversity minorities who join those companies might enjoy their experience there or might feel better there uh so so i think the next step really is about how many companies come forward and if we can identify the leaders who actually have good numbers and identify the stragglers who don't look so good if where each company falls on the spectrum you know the interesting thing about that is just that i i don't really understand the structure the need for the secrecy right i mean they aren't proud of these numbers but it isn't a secret that they don't have great diversity numbers anyhow i mean i was just talking to a friend about <laughs> that i was going to do a podcast on diversity in silicon valley and they said there's diversity in silicon valley i mean so there i mean they only have something to gain by being more transparent right I mean I think the nuanced answer to that is um there have been cases in the past when companies have been transparent and they've criticized for their poor numbers so there could be that fear of pushback but on the other hand you know companies that have even even the companies that have been criticized in the, in the long term you know in the short term media companies might criticize but in the long term I think there's value in being transparent especially if you care to move the needle on diversity even if you have poor numbers if those numbers have improved over time that's a key thing to keep track of and think about and i think the other interesting thing is that in the long term it's a cumulative effect you know you probably had bad numbers one year you've been working towards improving your diversity it's not just about numbers too it's like numbers are an indicator but they're they're not everything so you've been working towards helping your employees belong uh, or creating an inclusive culture and in the long term i think those those short term pushbacks probably don't matter but companies might be afraid of yeah. that well i will definitely follow your continued work on this and i hope to see the numbers improve um well thank you so much for joining me today i really enjoyed having this conversation with you thank you so much thanks for all your questions
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the electorate. Visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.